Hello, and welcome to the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I'm the head of communications at the European Policy Center. A few months ago, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover triggered fears of another refugee crisis in Europe. Pictures of Afghans fleeing from Kabul and overcrowded planes prompted new warnings about a so-called repeat of 2015. The EU's response focused primarily on evacuating EU citizens and promising support to neighboring countries hosting Afghan refugees in a not-so-veiled attempt to keep as many refugees as possible away from European soil. Since then, the spotlights have dimmed. But as winter looms and the new regime tightens its grip, what has happened to those Afghans that stayed behind? What has happened to those that have left? Are the EU and international community doing enough to address the growing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and the plight of Afghan refugees? And what is the EU's tense, knee-jerk response and approach to Afghan refugees and asylum seekers say about the state of its migration policy? Could there be a more humane, hopeful way forward? This episode is part of the Mercator Dialogue on Migration and Asylum, or MEDAM, a research project that develops evidence-based solutions for asylum and immigration policies. The Kiel Institute for the World Economy and the Migration Policy Center at the European University Institute in Florence have been involved in MEDAM since its founding. The EPC joined MEDAM at the beginning of 2020 and leads the monitoring and analysis of developments in EU migration policies. In the second part of a two-part episode, we'll zoom out a bit and discuss what the Afghan crisis has revealed about the EU's current view and approach to migration policy. In the next few minutes, you'll hear from Jean-Louis de Brouwer, the director of the European Affairs Programme at the Egmont Institute, and Sylvia Carta, policy analyst in the European Migration and Diversity Program at the EPC. The the first question is about um, the immediate reaction in in Europe to the situation in Afghanistan in in late August and early September. um, And that initial response was really to to avoid another 2015. It, It felt to me like more of a panic reaction. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about why was there such a fear of a repeat of 2015? Uh, we are on the same wavelength. Uh, in a paper I published recently with my colleague Eleonora Milazzo, I quote, I, I label this a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Uh, I think that the 2015 crisis left traces, left scars, mm-hmm. and that it's it has become very difficult to for the EU to approach any migration situation otherwise than, I would say, on the crisis mode. Uh, it's a common feature. It has become a highly polarized, politicized dossier. And, uh, okay, we had the same recently at the border with Belarus. Mm. Uh, I mean, the human dimension is completely lost sight of. 
And uh, the word crisis comes immediately on the front line, although at the end uh, it's a matter of uh, saving the lives of 4,000, 5,000 people. We'll see more of that in the future. Yeah, and, and you just also mentioned the, the response to what is now going on at the, at the Polish border. Um, it, th- there is, it seems, to be an extreme hardening of EU migration policy. And it seems that the only goal is really is, is to prevent people from, from crossing EU borders. What's, what's behind this? And do you think that this has come on quite suddenly? Or is that something that the, the current crisis at the Polish border and, and in Afghanistan has just brought to light? So it has been a growing tendency again uh, since 2015, but even before that, uh, I mean, think about what was happening in the middle of the Mediterranean, uh, think about the relationship, uh, the very strange relationship with Libya that was entertained even at the time of Gaddafi. So, I mean, the securitization, so-called securitization uh, on of the EU migration policy has been a growing tendency for these last years. Uh, it has to do uh, with uh, local, uh, I mean, local politics. It has to do with, I mean, the balance of powers in member states' uh, government. It has to do uh, with uh, a growing, uh, I mean, a, sen- a sense of discomfort, uh, uh, not that discomfort is not the right word. Uh, it has to do with, I mean, the public opinion being more and more concerned about its own future. I mean, I was recently looking at uh, Ipsos uh, poll, uh, which show very clearly that there is a direct relationship between, on one end, pessimism, the way The, the pessimism with people of people when looking at their economic future and their wish to see less migrants uh, arriving on the territory of their member states. This is, I mean, and of course, I mean, the COVID crisis, although we had the feeling at a certain point in time, some might have the feeling, and I had the feeling at a certain point in time, that uh, as it had highlighted the contribution of third country national to basic services in our country, that the COVID crisis could have a beneficial effect, consequence would have a positive consequence uh, helping to change this uh, mood. I don't see that happening. I don't see that happening and certainly not at the government level. And okay, we are looking pretty much at what the council and the member states are doing within the council. We are looking pretty much at what the commission is doing. But I mean, what I look at the ongoing debate within the parliament concerning the new pact on migration, uh, I'm not much more optimistic. So it, it's it's a Sadly enough, it seems to be a general political trend amongst uh, the EU and amongst EU member states. Uh, Silvio, what's what's your take on this this hardening, really, of um, feelings in the EU about migrants? Yeah, as Jean-Louis said, there was really this revival of the crisis narratives that have dominated already in 2015. Even if the situation today is very far from what we had in the past and in 2015-16 especially, because since then we have also seen arrivals to Europe decline consistently. And in 2020, due to the pandemic, this was this record low. And also thinking of Afghanistan, there is a greater, let's say, geographical distance uh, that marks another difference with the situation in Syria. And I think it is very important to also keep this in mind. And these past policy failures uh, are certainly something that the decision makers today do not want to be associated with. However, this does not mean that the panicked response and closure of borders uh, can be the solution, as it has been, um, let's say, um, vis-a-vis Afghanistan and now is also um, a narrative 
narrative that we hear a lot about Belarus. But the, despite the fact that arrivals are low, and especially arrivals from Afghanistan have not increased in the short term, and there is there is a lot of more attention uh, to restrictive measures uh, rather than, for example, legal pathways. And this is very telling. So I think that one um, interesting example uh, that we could look at is really this also um, attitude uh, towards, um, let's say, pull factors. So really this fear of having pull factors linked to welcoming policies. Um, so the fear that this would attract even more people uh, to come to Europe. And I'm thinking also to an interesting piece of Madame research uh, from Tobias Heidland and Jasper Tiaden, our colleagues at the Kiel Institute and the University of Potsdam, that offer some very interesting insights also on the realities behind this uh, fear of a pull factor. So they have studied in particular um, Angela Merkel's open doors policies, and they presented evidence pointing to the fact that these pull effects do not really outlive changing policy context. So they appear to have a minor relevance, of course, compared to structural factors that lead people to migrate, such as the conflicts, of course, extreme poverty and political unrest. So in short, it is also very important uh, to remind that uh, policymakers should not feel, um, let's say, completely restricted in their policy choices by the fear of this pull effect. And it's important to be able to show, let's say, a welcoming face uh, to people in need without really fearing to have these mass influxes that were evocated uh, during the, the first, let's say, weeks of the Afghan crisis. So there were many lessons that could have been uh, learned in 2015, but unfortunately, uh, many of them have not emerged in the debate uh, around Afghanistan. Do you think that governments in Europe have an, an outsized fear for public opinion? Do you think that they overestimate what public opinion also will be about having a more welcoming migration policy? Uh, I have no specific wisdom to share on that. Uh, I simply state uh, and I, I simply look at the, the agenda of the EU, the way it is being built uh, this time, and I don't see uh, any possibility to have a kind of a reversal uh, of this tendency in the future. Uh, I would like to share uh, the optimism underlying uh, what uh, Sylvia just said. Uh, I can't. I really can't in the present circumstances. And it's dramatic uh, because, of course, uh, it has a shilling effect worldwide uh, because people are looking at what the EU is doing. People are looking at what the EU is doing at its border. People are looking at, I mean, the EU institutions, which remain completely silent, although there is uh, ample evidence of pushbacks being implemented at different sides of the border. Uh, people are looking at the debate between heads of institutions concerning the question whether new uh, fences or new walls should be built at the border. And we see the tendency shifting towards accepting uh, fences and walls being built at the border. I mean, this is certainly, to put it very mildly, not exactly in line with what we could have considered as, I would say, key EU values, key European values, but it has also a tremendous impact uh, worldwide. If tomorrow uh, we have a president of the United States which decide again to build a wall at the border between the United States and Mexico, who are we going to be to raise our voice and say that it should not happen? We might have more walls at the external border at the EU by that time. I would like to be optimistic. Uh, I, I'm not, of course, one can always uh, quote or 
refer to, I mean, very positive example. I mean, civil society organizations are very active. Look at the humanitarian corridor, uh, San Egidio, the community of San Egidio is now, uh, with the support of the Italian government, by the way, trying to implement. Uh, so, again, we see also many local authorities uh, involved, uh, not only civil society organizations, but local authorities involved in a kind of a welcoming approach. See what polls have been doing at the border to try to alleviate the suffering of the few thousand Iraqi uh, stranded somewhere between Belarus and Poland. So all that exists. Uh, but when you look at the big politics, uh, when you look at the, uh, what, what you could call the macro politics, I don't see this growing uh, securitization, I repeat what I said earlier, uh, very, very inward-looking approach of migration change, at least in the near future. And uh, Jean-Louis, you mentioned it before, but what does all of this, this mean for the new pact on migration, the proposed revamp of the EU migration policy? I, I, I suppose it's not very positive. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I, I really would have liked to sound more, more more optimistic in my intervention. But okay, let's call a spade a spade. The pact is stalled. I mean, it's, it, it it goes nowhere. Uh, I mean, the Commission has done its best in trying to present what it thought was the best possible basis for a compromise. But as such, what it has proposed was already a compromise. So, the, I mean, it has exhausted uh, its capacity to be the usual broker. It is when, in, when, it, when complicated files uh, are negotiated li like this one. There is no incentive for different groups of member states present at the table to budge for the time being. Why should they change their position? Because after all, for many of them, the existing status quo with all its weaknesses is exactly what they want. It serves their interests. Uh, now, is there a way out? I am about to publish a paper with, uh, in, in, with a, a colleague of mine at the uh, Fondation Jacques Delors, uh, which defends, I would say, maybe something which might sound pretty much out of the box. But I was interested to hear that it was recently defended also by a prominent figure like Enrico Letta, for instance. And that is, uh, okay, an institutionalized coalition of the willing. Uh, if it is not possible to build a common asylum policy uh, with the 27 on board, then okay, let's go for those who want to go ahead with that. Uh, there have been many precedents uh, of this kind of uh, differentiated integration. There is a TEPSA conference going on for the time for the time being in Brussels about differentiated, differentiated integration. I mean, there have, there have been plenty of, of obstacles. There have been plenty of ways to implement that from opt-outs uh, to, I mean, parallel treaty and so I think that the time has come to really open that discussion and to open that conversation between those who wish to go ahead. Will that have consequences on Schengen? Yes, it will have consequences of Schengen. But if one wishes to, to at last deliver on this common approach of migration and asylum, I don't see any other way to move ahead. Uh, it will take a lot of courage. I mean, the first uh, head of state, which will break the rank and say, okay, that's what I propose, will have to, uh, okay, it, 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 it will not be very easy. And technically, it will certainly raise many questions. I mean, we don't have to underestimate that. But at this point in time, I don't believe that there will ever be something like a pact signed up by 27 member states and supported by the European Parliament on the basis of the existing proposals. Sylvia, do you have a have a slightly more optimistic view? And um, what do you what do you think about the idea that Jean-Louis proposed about going ahead with the coalition of the willing? 
Yeah, no, I actually have to echo what has just been said in terms of optimism. And I think that, um, especially in light of these new measures on asylum and returns that have been proposed by the Commission just this week um, in relation to the situation of Latvia, Lithuania and Poland at the border uh, with Belarus, are really indicative of this fact that we are going towards a union at different speeds, at least on asylum and migration. And in face of these developments, it would also be very important to give a signal that can counterbalance uh, the restrictive turn that we are taking. So to also show that the whole project of, co of a common European asylum system is not completely lost. And I also think it's, Im it's important to stress that all the attention cannot go on cooperation with third countries, but that more should be done on the internal dimension indeed, as Jean-Louis uh, just mentioned. In particular, uh, well, of course, improving the common European asylum system and creating uh, legal pathways, but also, let's say, moving the narrative from um, the adoption of the new pact only as the only possible solution to really looking at the internal implementation of the rules that we already have in place, which is at the time often forgotten, especially uh, by the Commission, which does not only have the role to propose new legislation and to advance, um, let's say, legislation, but also to make sure that member states do implement and do enforce the rules uh, that exist that, of course, are not perfect, but it could be uh, doing way more than they do at the moment. Yeah, Jean-Louis, if you want to add something. No, if I may comment on that, I mean, what uh, Sylvia said is really very interesting and it's key, uh, because the Commission seems to me to be in a catch-22 situation. When asked why it doesn't, uh, it is not more forthcoming uh, when existing legislation is either poorly implemented or blatantly violated with member state, by member states, uh, it, very, it very often uses the argument that, okay, yes, but it, it's very sensitive, it's very political. Mm. Uh, we are negotiating the pact with the member states for the time being, and therefore we have to try to find the right balance between, but okay, at the end of the day, nothing is happening. We have no pact and we have an existing legal framework, which is very often not well, to put it mildly, not well implemented and sometimes blatantly violated, as I said earlier. So, I mean, at a certain point in time, one, one, one will have to get out of this kind of uh, uh, one-way street uh, with, with no possibility to find a solution. And this is not the, the end of the game. Uh, of course, I mean, the, the, the reaction of the EU around minor migration incidents like Afghanistan or Belarus, I mean, they might, they, there is a geopolitical dimension of that. But OK, I'm now focusing on the migration dimension of this, mm -hmm. of this. I mean, shows that it is totally unprepared to cope with possible join crisis situation. I mean, I'm extremely concerned about what's going to happen uh, after the election uh, in Libya. I mean, the, the central Mediterranean route is, is, is still there. I mean, uh, the, 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 the situation is, is boiling in the Sahel. I mean, uh, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa are plunging deep into poverty uh, because of the, the economic consequences uh, of the pandemic. Uh, so, I mean, uh, we that that's far from being the end of it. And the EU is still, still demonstrates its complete 
inability to deal with that kind of crisis. I would also stress what Sylvia said earlier about the alibi of the relation with third countries. Uh, when you look at the Council conclusion, European Council conclusion, the most recent European Council conclusion, it's all about relation with third countries, uh, with this kind of permanent stick and carrot approach, which creates a lot of ambiguity. But okay, when third countries look at the way the EU is unable to put its own RRs in order, how can we expect that they would be willing to engage with us in a joint partnership about migration issues? I mean, I keep on repeating in all my, my intervention that the EU is strong outside when it is strong inside. And as long as we are going to be unable to get our house in order when dealing with migration and, and asylum, as long as we are going to be sticking to this crisis mode approach, as long as we are going to be uh, unable to have, uh, I mean, I would say a decent rational uh, about and a decent narrative uh, about migration, we are not going to be credible interlocutor for third country. It is as simple as that. And we are going to keep on, we are still going to become a hostage of countries, of of, of neighbors uh, who are, okay, I mean, maybe Mr. Lukashenko was not clever enough, was not diplomatic enough uh, to play the, the, the game the way Mr. Erdogan did play it in Turkey. Uh, but okay, this is with us. To try and end on a slightly less depressing note, I had another conversation with Sylvia and Helena. I asked them what the EU could still do to help the Afghan refugees in the immediate future and what could be the alternative to its current panicked, knee-jerk migration policy? I would see two options. First of all, as we discussed with Jean-Louis earlier, there could be the opportunity uh, for coalitions of the willing among those member states that still believe in a common and well-functioning European asylum system. Whereas there is also the opportunity for the Commission to focus on better implementation of the current standards. However, I must also say that the Commission has shown willingness to encourage member states to progress from one perspective, which is resettlement and other legal pathways. So first of all, following the Taliban takeover, the Commission has convened a high-level resettlement forum on providing protection for Afghans at risk, which brought together not only member states, but also other key resettlement actors such as the US, Canada, the UK and the UNHCR. And in this occasion, um, UNHCR also requested member states to offer 42,500 places to resettle Afghans in the next five years on top of other admissions for resettlement and complementary pathways. On the 9th of December, Commissioner Johansson also announced that part of this pledge has been fulfilled, in this case by 15 member states that came forward, and especially by Germany that offered 20,000, or actually 25,000 resettlement places for Afghans. So this is in line, of course, with the youth resettlement tradition that sees certain member states engaging more than others, and it is a good sign in terms of um, having some specific pledges that will target Afghans in the future. However, looking at this from another perspective, it is also true that there are member states uh, that could engage way more than this. These 40,000 places, especially if they are implemented in a consistent member manner and over a short period of time, could be certainly an important helping hand and a signal of solidarity from the EU to four countries that are now hosting Afghans. 
Following also on what uh, Sylvia just mentioned, in addition to resettlement, I think it's also worth reflecting on the potential of complementary pathways, notably community sponsorship programs uh, that have really grown in the past couple of years in Europe. Following the Taliban takeover, we saw many strong examples wherein civil society and cities and municipalities offered to take in Afghans, both in the context of the immediate post-evacuation phase, as well as on a more longer-term basis. I'm thinking of cities like Bordeaux in France or Vienna, but also the Italian Humanitarian Corridors Program that was launched for this specific purpose just a few weeks ago. At the same time, when it comes to resettlement commitments or also exploring complementary pathways to protection, while we have seen progress by EU member states in terms of making more concrete commitments, like Sylvia just said, I do also see a risk going forward that these local initiatives on complementary pathways may become a primary vessel, at least for some member states, to enable Afghans to reach places of safety. And this is because it may be uh, in the absence of larger scale national or also longer term EU coordinated approaches to resettlement. At this stage, we do not quite know what the timeline for these 40,000 resettlement places is going to be. And I think it's going to be crucial to keep a close eye on that in order to also hold member states to account on the commitments that they made. This is not to say that these cannot go hand in hand, which they should. But at the end of the day, resettlement as well as complementary pathways are also questions of political willingness. The Commission has invested great efforts in encouraging and coordinating a joint approach, but we need more member states to establish and support initiatives like the one in Italy in order to reach as many Afghans as possible, including those that may not be eligible for regular resettlement, but still have international protection needs. Thank you to Jean-Louis, Helena, and Sylvia for their contributions. We here at the EPC will continue to closely follow the EU's migration policies. If you're interested to learn more about our work, go to epc.eu or subscribe to this podcast. Tune in next time. Until then, over and out.